Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 uh, will be the text this morning. Um, North Park students, welcome. We're glad you all are here. You made, how'd you get here? How did you even, how did you get here? It's a long ways away. You drove. Okay, all right. Well, that's still good, too. I was going to be impressed if you did public transit or something like that. We're really glad you're here. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, and then my mother is also here today helping us out. Um, you can keep praying for Maggie. She's doing a whole lot better after her surgery and wanted to be here today. It's kind of on the fence and then decided, nope, let me take one more Sunday off. So um, keep praying for her. And then I want to um, also recognize my friends, Uni and Rick Johnson. Uh, Uni and Rick are missionaries in, well, kind of a, a lot of places, but mostly in the San Diego, Tijuana, uh, Mexico area. And Rick walked in this morning, kind of like teased me because I'm wearing a bow tie because uh, Rick knew me when I was like in diapers. So um, I, my family knew Rick when we uh, lived in Venezuela many, many years ago and have been really thankful to track with these guys over the years. And uh, they are, for me, uh, models of servant leadership, of serving God's people with great, great humility, uh, often at great cost. Uh, and risk. And so whenever we do have uh, guests in ministry with us, we'd like to take a minute and just uh, pray a blessing uh, over them. So uh, would the two of you mind just standing where you are and the rest of you just turning and extending your hand in blessing uh, as I pray uh, for them. So God, we thank you for your servants. We thank you for your spirit's power and uh, faithfulness to them over many, uh, many years. Uh, We're asking God that you refresh their hearts and their minds and their spirits. We're asking, Lord, that they would uh, hear uh, from you, not occasionally, but, but very, very regularly. We're praying, Lord, that you would clarify vision, uh, renew hearts and renew minds. We're asking that you would restore the joy of salvation. Uh, we're asking that you give a, a joy uh, in hard places. We're asking that you uh, increase mustard seed size uh, uh, faith uh, in them and, and that it would always be placed in your in your son Jesus. We're asking for fruitfulness uh, in ministry, not because of their great effort, but because of the power of your Holy Spirit bearing that fruit uh, in them and, in th- and through those who they, who they serve so, so faithfully, God. So we, we bless you for them. We thank you for them. We thank you for the many uh, churches uh, scattered throughout Latin America that uh, they represent here uh, today. And so we pray that your blessing would extend through them uh, to those uh, different uh, peoples and congregations, worshiping, serving faithfully, uh, lifting up Jesus faithfully uh, all over Latin America. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. If you get a chance, grab them after the service and get on their kind of mailing list so that you can be encouraged by them and uh, maybe find ways to partner with them as well. Matthew chapter 4, verses one through 11. If you have found that, and if you're able, would you stand please for the reading of God's word? Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, 
and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. This is the word of God. So Holy Spirit of the living God, we ask that you would be our teacher, that you would be our interpreter, that you would make this word living and active, that you would today compel us to respond boldly in faith. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. You can be seated. From this passage this morning, I will preach from the title, The Weapons of Our Warfare. The Weapons of Our Warfare. And I'm going to say this now so that I don't forget. At the end of the service, I'm going to, at the end of the sermon, in our closing words, I'm going to invite you to respond by coming forward to the cross. And that'll make a little bit more sense, uh, but I forget sometimes. But I feel like the important part of what God has uh, given for us today is not just my uh, sermon, but our response to the Word of God. Amen? Amen? So... The Sunday before the presidential election last year in November, I had a great sermon prepared. Well, I think it was great. I never actually preached it, so I don't know if it was great. Because about 30 minutes before our service, uh, I felt very strongly the Holy Spirit saying to set that sermon aside and to preach from the text that I just read this morning. I preached from the Luke version of that passage. Now, that is not a normal experience for me. Uh, That is not my comfort zone. I have six pages of notes up here, and I like having six pages of notes. I like preaching that way. Uh, But I was under the strong conviction of the Holy Spirit that there was a different word from God for us on that Sunday. And the word, I believe, from God for our church on that Sunday was, God will be faithful in the wilderness. Amen? God will be faithful to his people in seasons of wilderness. As the contemporary theologian Kendrick Lamar would say, we're going to be all right. In the wilderness, Dennis is shaking his head. He's like, don't do that again. In the wilderness, God will be, God has been faithful to us. Amen? And that has been a needed and necessary word for me during this season. I have I have needed to know that in this time, in this place, God is, God will be faithful to his church. This is a necessary word because on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis, it can, be, it can seem at least questionable whether God is faithful in the wilderness. We see the ongoing dehumanization of immigrants on seemingly a daily basis. We see policies to militarize police departments are being brought back. So-called law and order drug laws are being put forward so that while the opioid epidemic ravaging white communities is being treated like a public health issue, once again, black and brown communities are being targeted for our insatiable criminal justice system. And on and on it goes. I have needed to know that God is faithful in the wilderness. Is anybody with me? 
But there's a, a new word for us today from this passage. God is faithful to us in the wilderness. Whether the wilderness for you is the landscape of this country in this moment, whether the wilderness for you is your family situation, your work situation, your marriage situation, a, 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 a deep internal private depression that you're going through, the word for us is that God is faithful in the wilderness. So we can say this morning with the psalmist, my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Three weeks ago, I uh, spent a weekend with my mentor at a retreat um, in Washington State, just south of the Canadian border. And I was gathered there with a few other people. And in passing, she referenced this passage that we just read. And and she didn't talk about it. She didn't linger on it. But in that moment, I knew that God had more for us in this passage. I knew that God had another word for the church from this passage. And so I've been living in this passage for the past three weeks. I was planning on preaching something, starting a new sermon series today, but I knew that there was something, so I've been living in this passage for the past three weeks. So it's true that God is faithful to us in the wilderness, but here's the word for the church today. There is a battle for us in the wilderness. God is faithful to us in the wilderness, Hollis, but there is a battle for us in the wilderness as well. There is a fight for us in the wilderness. God does not lead us passively into the wilderness. God leads us into the wilderness for a fight. No amens? The idea of God leading us into a fight is going to make some of us uncomfortable this morning. Some of us have an image of God that doesn't leave a whole lot of room for battles or for wars. But Jesus' peers wouldn't have shared that squeamishness about fights and battles and wars. Because you see, Jesus and his disciples grew up in an occupied land. Generations of their ancestors had known only exile and occupation. First the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then a brief period of freedom, and then the Romans came into For generations, they'd known nothing but violence and war. Their struggle against oppression and captivity was profound. It was in their generational DNA. They had been taxed into poverty. They'd been forced to sell ancestral land to foreign landlords. Their countrymen were crucified en masse by the Romans. State-sponsored terror meant to keep revolutionary Jews in their place was commonplace. Puppet kings ruled tyrannically, and the Roman governors occasionally flexed their profane military might over their sacred city and its holy temple. Those of us this morning with a certain amount of privilege or status have maybe mostly been kept from the sting of violence. And so we we have the license to think about evil in the abstract, as the theory. Jesus and his contemporaries didn't have that luxury. The battle came to them. The fight was always at their doorstep. Maybe it helps to think about our own context. We can imagine 
African-American communities in the Jim Crow South not all that long ago. Abandoned by the federal government to racist state legislatures. Systematically disenfranchised from the voting booth. Swept into penal farms on false pretenses so that slavery could continue under a different name. And lynchings. Modern day crucifixions meant to instill the same terror experienced by those first century Galileans. Peace. Genuine peace, what the Bible calls shalom, is always the strong desire of our hearts. But no one in those settings could pretend that peace had come. Violence and war were always at hand. There was a fight that had to be fought, not because people wanted to fight, but because there was an enemy who was bent on their destruction. Are you with me? The question for Jesus' Jewish community, the question for many of those black communities in the Jim Crow South, I would say the question, maybe for our moment as well, is not about whether or not we will fight. It's about the enemy we face. It's about the nature of the fight. When it comes to thinking about enemies, Jesus' contemporaries were pretty sure they knew exactly who the enemy was. It was Rome. Because it was Rome who had occupied their land. It was Rome who desecrated their temple. It was Rome who occupied their whole city, terrorized their young people, colonized their language and their culture, and on and on. Rome was responsible for their poverty and fear. Rome was responsible for their occupation and exile. Rome was responsible for conscripted labor and lynched Jewish bodies. It was obvious to everyone that Rome needed to be defeated. The only question was, how are we going to do it? Some decided to retreat into the wilderness until Rome consumed itself through its own excess. Others pursued vigorous religious reforms, believing that God would act on their behalf once their own spiritual house was in order. Others including some of Jesus' own disciples, believed that only a bloody rebellion would be enough to drive Rome from their land. They hoped that Jesus would be the charismatic leader they needed to lead an insurrection in Jerusalem. Each of these groups, and we could add others to them, each of these groups looked to Jesus with the hope that he would defeat their enemy. Would Jesus lead his followers to a death retreat? waiting for the right time to ride in triumph into Jerusalem? Would he join other religious leaders in leading a great spiritual reformation which would provoke God's wrath on their behalf? Would he gather to himself a large following of zealous disciples who were ready for a violent and glorious rebellion that would take Rome's violent tactics and turn them onto their oppressors? problem was Jesus did none of those things. And as a result, people were very confused by Jesus. The confusion about Jesus is tangible as we read through the Gospels. His own cousin, John, was imprisoned, and he's watching Jesus from afar, and he's so confused that he sends some of his own disciples to say, are you actually the person we thought you were? Because... You're not doing the stuff we thought you were going to do. The Pharisees can't stop interrogating Jesus, trying to understand how his renewal movement matches their own, and they find him lacking. 
the revolutionary insurgents, they initially get very excited. Their numbers swell. The Gospel of John tells of a moment when Jesus is out in the wilderness and all of these young Jewish men come gathering around him. They want to make him king by force. But then Jesus starts talking about his inevitable death at the hands of the very enemy they are dedicated to defeating and the crowds dissipate. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, "Are you, you want to go too? Jesus never denies that there is a fight to be had. He doesn't disagree with his contemporaries about that. It's just that he's mostly uninterested in directing his energies at Rome. While everybody around him believes that their hope lies in Rome's defeat, Jesus pursues a very different fight with a very different enemy. A few weeks ago, after... We saw on the news as as white premises descended on Charlottesville. Started to hear different commentary about it, different social media hashtags. And one of the ones that I saw that really caught my attention was, this isn't us. Anybody see that one? About the the blatant display of of racism in Charlottesville. Uh, Certain people were saying, well, that's not really America. That's not us. That's an exception. It reminded me of of some of what we've heard since the presidential election. Those of us who've been deeply troubled by this president and presidential administration, some people have said, well, he's not my president. This isn't us. This is not my president. And these kinds of moments, like we've seen over the past few months, let's call them wilderness moments, we see passionate resistance. Resistance to those white supremacists, to the damaging policies and rhetorics of this presidential administration. We watch as coalitions are mobilized to to defeat these these movements with their ugly rhetoric and policies. And what also becomes clear in these moments is that many of us see these kind of ugly and spectacular people their agendas, we see them as our true enemies. We see them as the location of our most important fight. Imagine, for example, if the current administration were to be magically replaced tomorrow with one on the opposite end of America's binary political establishment. Would our passion for justice be as strong? Would we speak out the same amount of passion? Would we cry out for God's righteous intervention to continue? Or would we fade into the woodwork? Betrays where we think our true enemies lie, where the true fight is. As Jesus' peers imagined their futures, they might have said something like this. If Rome were defeated, then we will be okay. If Rome were defeated, then we would have peace. How would we say that sentence? If only this administration were defeated, then we'd be okay. If only those white supremacists that we saw on television were defeated, then we would be okay. It's usually more personal, isn't it? If only my husband's selfishness were defeated, then I'd be okay. If only my family's generational dysfunctions went away, then I'd be okay. If only my personal temptation 
frailty were defeated, then I would be okay. The thing about Jesus is that he never denies the significance of those kinds of battles. He never denies the significance of the systemic injustices that break so many of our hearts. Also doesn't direct his fight toward any of these. Despite the overwhelming consensus of his contemporaries, Jesus looks for a different enemy. He picks a different fight. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. At the very end of his ministry, The devil influences one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, to turn Jesus over to his executioners. Throughout his ministry, time and time again, Jesus liberates women and men from demonic oppression. He confronts the devil's representatives with the authority of heaven. And here, at the very beginning of his ministry, Immediately after his baptism and God's declaration of love for him, Jesus walks into the wilderness looking for the devil. Jesus is so consistently misunderstood by even his closest friends because because his understanding of our true enemy was much deeper than Rome. And because his understanding of the enemy was so different, his understanding of the fight, of the battle, was also very, very different. So instead of gathering an army, Jesus walks into the wilderness. Instead of picking fights with Roman soldiers, Jesus asserts his authority over the demonic powers. Instead of leading an insurgent rebellion into Jerusalem to liberate and cleanse the temple, Jesus instead carries his cross to Calvary, where the spiritual forces of sin and evil do their worst on his innocent body. The enemy is different, and so the fight looks different. Are you with me? After Jesus' resurrection, after his victory over sin and death and evil, the early church began to grasp the cosmic nature of the battle that Jesus had fought and won. Their minds started to get around what Jesus had been talking about all along. And so they also begin to grapple with their own place in this battle. What does it mean for us that this was Jesus' battle? So Paul says in Ephesians 6 and 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Whose schemes? Not the president. Not even the white supremacists. Against the devil's schemes. Paul says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The word for us, the Sunday in November, was that God is faithful in the wilderness. Yes and amen. But, as the early church quickly came to understand the wilderness was not only for waiting. The wilderness in the pattern of Jesus was also for fighting, for confronting our enemy, 
for joining Jesus in his fight against the source of all injustice, rebellion, and temptation. The wilderness is for fighting. Church, this is not the time to be passive. This is not the time to sit back and wait until everything returns to normal. The wilderness is for fighting. It's not the time to be passive, but neither is this the time to fight battles of our own making. To focus our energies on Enemies who, for all their malicious intentions, are ultimately only symptoms of a deeper evil. Church, if the Spirit has led you, if the Spirit has led us into the wilderness, then it is for a fight. A fight with God's true enemy. A fight that has absolutely been fixed by Jesus' victory, but a fight that will nonetheless cost you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 and 3, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. I want you to hear this very clearly. The injustices that you are passionate about absolutely matter. They are fights worth having. When Elliot and I took the train downtown on Tuesday to protest with other people about the the DACA announcement that came out from the administration, that was a fight worth having. I really believe it. It's a fight worth having with those young immigrants. But what we cannot miss and what Jesus will not let us miss is that there is a deeper fight behind these others. There is an enemy behind this world's puppets who come and go. Jesus leads you into the wilderness to join Jesus. It is to fight with Jesus. It is a fight for freedom. It's a fight for liberation. It's a fight for salvation. It's a fight that goes far beyond resisting white supremacists, as important as that is. It's a fight that goes far beyond standing up to our current racist, misogynistic administration, as important as that is. So the Spirit leads us into the wilderness to join Jesus in the fight against the devil and his destructive schemes. So how do we join this fight? What does it look like? Well, it's always safe to start with Jesus, to follow his example. And we have it beautifully laid out for us in our passage this morning. So I want to end with four observations before I call those of you who are compelled to come forward in response. What does Jesus do? How does Jesus walk into this fight with evil? The first thing he does is he obeys in faith. He obeys in faith. I find it, um, I don't know if it's funny or ironic, but that for Jesus, the wilderness comes immediately after his baptism. I mean, the spiritual high could not have been greater. The mountaintop could not have been taller. He's baptized by John the Baptist. 
I mean, the guy's name is Baptist. Right? He comes out of the water and the heavens open up. And a voice, the voice of the Father says, this is my son. I'm pleased. I'm proud of you. I love you. I mean, tell me you've had a spiritual high that, that quite matches that, right? And immediately, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness. Right off of that spiritual high. Jesus could have said a lot of things, I think. He could have said, oh, I'm good. Uh, I heard the voice of the Father. I don't need to do the wilderness. Uh, I, I know who I am. I know what I'm about. I understand this moment, so why waste time going into the wilderness? These are the kinds of moments where our faith is revealed. Uh, this, these are the kinds of moments where the location of our faith is revealed. What would you have said in that moment? Would have you been like, okay, off to the wilderness we go? Or would have you had a conversation with God about that? Would you have even heard the voice of the Spirit Calling you into the wilderness. These are the kinds of moments that reveal where we've actually placed our faith. The temptation to place our faith, faith in false idols and idolatries and ideologies is great. We can come up here on a Sunday, we can sing, we can worship, and we can still place the, 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 the weight of our faith elsewhere. We can say things about Jesus. We can kind of do the right thing. But then when this sort of moment comes, it becomes very clear where, in fact, we've placed our faith. Is it in safety? Is it in security? Is it in status? I can't take that job. What would my parents think? I can't live there. What would my my, my, my college classmates think? can't walk away from that thing. That's the, that's the conveyor belt to the goal. Jesus obeys in faith. The fight begins because Jesus is willing to obey in faith. Are you with me? So don't overlook those moments. Don't overlook that tension that, listen, some of you, I guarantee, like in your gut, like when things get quiet, when you actually shut off the noise, you have a thing come up in you where God has been saying and nudging and prompting for a long time and you just push it, tune it out because if I said yes to that, if I obeyed that, then that would mean I have to walk away from this. That I'd have to move the location of my faith from what? The American dream? From my bank account? From the equity building up in my home? From this kind of college degree that's guaranteed to have this kind of income? I'd have to place it. 
Are you with me? First thing Jesus does, he obeys in faith. Secondly, he prepares spiritually. He prepares spiritually. Jesus tells us that the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, quote, to be tempted by the devil. The only reason that Jesus is led into the wilderness is what? To be tempted by the devil. That's why the Spirit leads him there, to face, to confront, to fight the source of evil. The second thing that Matthew tells us, after he says that Jesus has been led into the wilderness, what's the second thing that Matthew tells us? What does the passage say? It's in there. It's in there. The Spirit led him into the wilderness. Jesus obeys faithfully. The second thing Jesus does is he stops eating. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus prepares spiritually for the fight that he knows is coming. Jesus understood his mission. He understood his purpose, which was to defeat sin, death, and evil. He knew that confrontations with evil were not only inevitable, they were purposeful. They were the very reason that he had come. Jesus understood his purpose, and so he prepared for it by fasting. He understood his mission, and so he prepared himself spiritually for his mission. Do you know your purpose as a Christian? Do you understand your mission as a Christian person? Last week we said that your life is God's way of obtaining somebody's freedom. Your life is God's way of obtaining somebody's freedom. Do you understand this? Do you believe this? Do you understand that this is your purpose and your mission as a Christian? God has not saved you in order to make your life a little bit better. God has not saved you to just patch up that one piece of you that you know is messed up while you hang on to the rest of it. God has not saved you, has not rescued you from sin and injustice only to have you tiptoe safely through life. God has rescued you in order that you would rescue others, in order that God's freedom and salvation would advance through you. This is your purpose. Jesus didn't ransom captives like you and me only to turn us into good consumers. Jesus didn't ransom captives like you and me only to to, to, to turn us into American capitalists. Michelle, the sociologist, said amen to that one. Jesus didn't ransom the captives only to turn us into nice citizens. Jesus ransomed you, Jesus ransomed us from the death grip of sin and evil so that we could then join Jesus in proclaiming the gospel message of freedom and salvation for the cosmos, for the world. There's a purpose to your salvation. 
Think about the context here again for a minute. Jesus had just experienced a spiritual mountaintop like none other, and yet, because he understood his purpose, he still fasted for 40 days before facing the enemy. I mean, look, if you and I had had that experience, we would have been like, yeah, bring the devil on. I've been baptized by John. I heard the voice of the Father. Whatever, I'm good. I'm ready. Jesus says, no, I know my purpose, my mission. I know that confrontation with evil is not inevitable, but in fact purposeful. And so I'm going to prepare myself spiritually for this fight. Are you with me? We are called into a battle, evil, for the salvation of sinners, for the liberation of the oppressed, and for the healing of the nations. Can I say it again? You and I cannot approach the Christian life as spiritual consumers. We are called into a battle with evil for the salvation of sinners, for liberation of the oppressed, and for the healing of the nations. I'm utterly convinced that the reason so many of us, I'm going to get in your business right now, okay? The reason so many of us neglect the spiritual disciplines that have been passed down to us by generations of faithful Christians, the reason we neglect the basic spiritual disciplines is because we don't believe we're in a fight. So we we neglect prayer. And our Bibles get dusty. And we stop confessing sin to each other. And we don't fast. And we come to corporate worship occasionally when it's comfortable, when it works out for our schedule. We're not accountable to one another. And on and on the list could go. Why? Because we've come to understand ourselves as consumers rather than as God's agents of reconciliation in the world. But once we understand that we have been called by Jesus into the wilderness for a fight All of a sudden, the armor of God is indispensable. All of a sudden, I can't get enough of the word. All of a sudden, I can't get off my knees in prayer because I need to hear from God. All of a sudden, fasting becomes not, I don't like it. I'm hungry and I get grumpy. Everybody gets grumpy when you don't eat. But now you need to fast because you know the fight that God has called you. I confess my sin to Dennis. I don't want him to know my business. But when we understand the nature of the fight for freedom from sin and captivity, well, then, of course, I'm going to open up my life accountability with somebody else. Are you with me, church? We make this too complicated sometimes. We We got spiritual ancestors who say, hey, try praying. Try reading your Bible. Three times a week, and then maybe five times a week. Try fasting, you know, like maybe once a year and then twice a year. Try choosing one accountability partner and and sharing your life with this person. We make it too complicated. There's the testimony of the saints who've gone before us who say, no, there, there are ways that we prepare for this fight. And if Jesus did it, what are we doing? Here's the third one. 
Jesus resists the devil's lies with God's truth. Jesus resists the devil's lies with God's truth. The devil comes at Jesus. Sorry, that's a good excuse for me to take my jacket off. Thank you. Jesus, uh, the devil comes at Jesus a few different ways. If you look at the different temptations, uh, the devil uses a few different tactics to come at Jesus. And I believe the purpose of this is to confuse. It's like, oh, it's coming from over here, and then there's this thing happening, and then, and then evil is, is doing this over here, and it's just it's too much, and so I don't do anything. It can sound sophisticated and confusing, as though the devil is super smart and crafty and even omniscient and omnipresent. But here's the thing. All of the devil's tactics come down to just one thing. Deception. Anybody grow up with the old saints who said the devil is a, is a liar? That's some deep theology right there. That's the truth. The devil is a liar. The devil is only a liar. And the devil is always a liar. Period. This is the extent of the enemy's strategy. The devil is not God. The devil is not omniscient or omnipresent. The devil is limited to one particular strategy. It just happens to be our greatest weakness. The devil lies and we believe those lies. And Jesus doesn't get caught up in it. He doesn't start arguing with the devil. Right? The devil comes to Jesus you're hungry, you haven't eaten for 40 days. Look at those rocks. Turn those into bread. Like if it was us, we'd be like, oh, well, hmm. Is miraculous bread technically breaking my fast? Is making loaves out of thin air, like that's God's provision for me, right? So like, that wouldn't really technically be, I'm on this Daniel fast, and I'm not sure that that grain is, you know, so I can, uh, right? Like we would get, we argue, we, we, we kind of perseverate on the, and Jesus just understands from jump, the devil is a liar. We're not having this conversation. I'm not wasting any time on this. He understands, Jesus understands that everything that Paul says is a lie. He quickly counters each of the deceptions with truth. Every single one of Jesus' responses is from Scripture. Remember that thing about preparing spiritually? Jesus doesn't get witty. Jesus doesn't get creative. Jesus doesn't come with PowerPoint presentation. Let me tell you why I'm not going to succumb to your temptation. He's just scripture, scripture, truth, truth, truth. He doesn't get sucked into debates with the devil. The devil lies, and Jesus tells the truth, period, end of story. And some of us are going to sound a little bit too simplistic because for us, we think our battles with evil aren't generally so obvious, right? Like, you're like, well, look, if the Spirit led me into the desert and there's the devil, like, clearly I would know. I would just quote the Bible. And, but, like, in real life, things are more complicated. I get it. I don't think it's true, though. Jesus understood that the evil behind every single one of this world's corrupt powers, whether with oppressed Roman authorities or corrupt religious leaders, that all of that evil actually eventually would come down to that single source of evil, God's enemy. So ultimately, his battle... Jesus' battle was always going to be with the evil behind those powers. It's the devil's genius to make his simple tactic of deception appear complex and hard to grasp. In actuality, it's all deception. But we fall for it. 
we hear things like, well, funding Chicago public schools is very complicated. And uh, the racial inequity is just, it's insurmountable. It's just kind of how it is. It's just sort of how our city, you don't even, need, don't even think about it. Because it's, too, it's too, 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 too complicated for you. No, no, actually it's not. We have decided, we have agreed that it is okay, that our funding formulas will benefit wealthy students. We've, we've made that agreement, and we are acting on it. Well, safety and uh, uh, flourishing is impossible uh, on a broad scale uh, on the south side or on the west side because, you know, black-on-black crime. Uh, no, that's a lie. That's absolutely a lie. There is no such thing as black-on-black crime. There's only trauma inflicted by intentional segregation, disenfranchisement, and divestment from our communities. Ah, it's too calm. I can't think. No, the devil is a liar. So we speak truth. And then here's my last one. Zach, would you mind coming and playing a little bit? Here's the last one. That was a invitation of Zach playing the keys. Is that pretty good? Is that how you do it? <laughs> sorry. sorry. Uh, here's the last one. Jesus fights with authority. Jesus fights with authority. Let me just remind you of what we've heard so far. He obeys in faith. He prepares himself spiritually. He resists the devil's lies with God's truth. And then finally, Jesus fights with authority. The thing that makes the devil's simple tactic of deception so effective it is that, that it's directed at our identity, right? Like, it's not abstract. It's not just this lie about something out there. Uh, the deception cuts to the heart, cuts to the quick. It's about our identity. This is what the devil does with uh, Eve and Adam in the garden. God doesn't really want the best for you. You're not really, I mean, God wouldn't have brought, you're not really going to believe God, right? Go to our identity. This is exactly what the devil does with Jesus. Two of the three temptations begin with what? If you are the son of God. That's crazy, right? Because literally Jesus, where did he just come from? The Jordan River, baptism, the father, you are my son. And yet the devil knows that we are so susceptible to doubting our identity that he tries it twice on Jesus, the son of God, who just heard his identity from God. Right? Because he knows we are so susceptible to this. If you're the son, you're not really, right? You wouldn't be out here, right? You wouldn't be hungry, sitting on a rock in the middle of the wilderness if you were God's son, right? If, if you are a daughter of, you're not really a daughter of God, right? If you had access to the resources of heaven, because you, you don't really, do you? If you had every spiritual gift that God gave you for this work, uh, do you though? I don't know. But Jesus knows his identity. And because he knows his identity, because he is convinced of his identity as the Son of God, he speaks with the Father's authority. The Son of God is able to speak with the authority of God. The daughter of God is able to speak with the authority of God. When we speak from our identities as God's children, we no longer speak from our own authority. We speak with the authority of heaven. 
You're not, so Sonia in her classroom on Monday is not speaking from your own authority. She's speaking with the authority of heaven behind her. And John, when he's taking his grad school classes, he's not speaking out of his own intelligence and authority. He is speaking with the authority of a, as a son of God. Jesus understands his identity because he doesn't give his identity away. He speaks from that authority. When we enter the fight with evil, we do so as representatives of God's authority. We are not called to speak with our own wisdom or from our own strength. No! The gospel of Jesus Christ is always that God's power is manifested in our weakness. Our only responsibility, our only responsibility is to confess our dependence on and allegiance to Jesus. That is the source of our authority. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that allows us to enter this battle with sovereign authority. Some of you are having the same fight over and over and over again. Some of you are beating your head into the wall over and over and over again because you are acting out of your own authority. You're trying to figure that thing out of your own strength, out of your own wisdom, out of your own knowledge. Rather than realizing that as a weak, broken, sinful person, you have access to the power of God in your life to speak with God's authority into that situation, into that temptation, into that sickness, into that brokenness, into that injustice. Are you with me? The authority and the power of God is available to every daughter and son of God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What are you facing today that seems insurmountable? Where is the wilderness battle for you right now? It's marriage, it's a secret temptation or addiction, it's unclarity about the Uh, about the future? Where is the wilderness for you? I don't know how I'm going to pay those bills. I have this person, I've been praying for their salvation for years, and it seems like they just walk farther away from God. Where is the wilderness for you? What seems insurmountable to you today? What has you worn down and exhausted today? What injustice seems intractable? What salvation seems impossible? What reconciliation seems too difficult? Child of God, you've been led into the wilderness for a fight. And you fight with the authority of heaven. You don't speak from your brilliant personality, from your brilliant tactics, from your brilliant intelligence. You speak with the authority as God's ambassador of reconciliation, as the Son's representative of salvation, as the Holy Spirit's agent of freedom. Away from me, Satan, Jesus says, as it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It's like Jesus got to the point, like, we're done. I came to fight you. You did your best, and now we're done. He speaks with the authority of the Father to reclaim territory. That is our fight.
You and I stand in the midst of deception and devastation. And from that place, we claim lives and we claim land for Jesus. With our words and our actions, we move with the authority of Jesus. Away from me, Satan. Away from my family. Away from my neighborhood. Away from Kennecott. Away from Jackie Robinson. Away from every church in our city. Away from our missionary friends in Ecuador and Mexico. Away from her depressed mind. Away from his cynical spirit. Away from the vulnerable immigrants in our country. Away from disenfranchised individuals and families, communities, and neighborhoods. Away from us, Satan. That is not a defensive posture. That is not a, oh, the devil caught me by surprise posture. That is a, we have been led into a fight. We understand our purpose and our mission. We're rejecting spiritual consumerism. We're choosing to follow Jesus into the wilderness for his battle with evil. We worship the Lord our God. And we serve him only. And so we enter into this fight with the authority of heaven at our backs. Amen? Okay, so this is what I'm supposed to do now. And I knew this before I even had my sermon. I'm supposed to invite anybody who needs to enter this fight to come up to the cross this morning. Anybody who needs to enter the fight for the very first time, saying yes to Jesus for the very first time. Any of us this morning who say, I've been passive, I've been a consumer, I've been on the sidelines, and I'm ready to enter this fight. I need you to push past this morning any embarrassment, any shame, any I don't have this all figured out in my head yet. I need you to come forward today and I'm supposed to commission us and pray for us for the fight in the wilderness that Jesus has for us today. Amen? This is not a time for us to sit back and watch. God has been faithful to you in the wilderness. Amen? He has kept you. You're in your right mind this morning. You're breathing this morning. You got somewhere to go after. He has kept you in the wilderness. But you're not in the wilderness just to sit around and wait fight for us. And it's a good fight. It's a fight for salvation. It's a fight for liberation. It's a fight for freedom. But it's a fight that can only happen if you understand your mission, your purpose as a follower of Jesus Christ. Amen? Are you with me? Okay. So Esther and the team are going to come up to start leading us in worship. I'm going to ask you to stand right where you are. If you can't come forward this morning for any reason, that's okay. You stay where you are. If you're supposed to sit, sit. If you're supposed to stand where you are, stand where you are. But if there's any leading by the Spirit in you this morning to come up to the cross, to to dust off the cobwebs, to clear the mind, and to say, I've been called into a fight, and I'm saying yes to that today, I I need you to come quick this morning, okay? And so God, bring forward your people now. Call us forth in faith as we worship you to follow Jesus into this fight. It's not a fight of our own making. It doesn't always fit our agenda. But we follow you. And we trust you. And so we're going to obey you in faith this morning as we say yes to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So come forward as you're ready. Just come up to the cross. You can stand. You can kneel. You can pray. Whatever you need to do. No.
oceans rise, my soul will rest in your embrace, for I am yours, and you are mine. We give you the benediction in a minute. We're going to receive the offering right now. Just stand right where you are. We're going to do this quick. Go ahead and start passing it by. Prayer cards, welcome cards. If you don't have time to give now and you want to, just do it in the back on your way out. If you're a guest this morning, you can put your welcome card in there. If there's anything we can pray with you about, please put a prayer card in there. If there's not time to do it now, do it on your way out. Here's the beautiful and amazing thing about the call to follow Jesus in the wilderness. It's never a call in isolation. Jesus never calls you to act alone, to walk alone. You've been saved into the body of Christ. You've been rescued into the kingdom of God. You have a home, you have a family, you have a people who walk with you, who walk into the wilderness with you. So whatever thing you heard today, however hard, however costly, you are not alone. Amen? You walk into the wilderness, child of God, daughter of God, son of God, a part of a people who are saying yes to the call of Jesus together, who are walking into the fight, into the battle together. You are not alone. You are not alone. So receive now the benediction. May the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you. May our Lord make his face to shine upon you this week, to guide you, to direct you, to encourage you, to convict you, to empower you, to prepare you, to speak truth to you, to rescue you, to be your words, to be your actions, to be your hope, to be your future. Remember this week that your life is hidden in Jesus Christ, that there is no, nothing from the enemy, no word, no temptation, no deception that can claim your life. You are a child of God, woman and man of God. Act out of your identity this week. Live out of God's truth this week. Say yes to the battle, to the fight that you've actually been called to this week and do so as a member of the family of God. Send us Jesus Christ. Receive our our praise and our glory, Father God. Give us every spiritual gift we need for the fight today and tomorrow. Holy Spirit of the living God. In Jesus' name we pray. Say thank you to God this morning. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you for worshiping with us. Go in peace. If you're sticking around for our meeting, we'll start in a few minutes. Otherwise, we'll see you next week.